0: Hello everybody, just a short note before this week's episode. We actually recorded this episode a couple of weeks ago, so as you will notice, some of the facts we discuss are now slightly out of date. We think that the theory underlying the facts still applies, um, so we are releasing the episode as usual and you can decide what you think, but just to make you aware that some of the things we discuss are now outdated. Hope you enjoy the episode
1: the lie that poetry tells is constant as the truth
0: itself without the lies and the false beliefs where would we be where would we be welcome to the state of the pv podcast
1: i'm hannah
0: I'm
1: in India. And we are your theory doctors.
0: Welcome back. Episode 11. And this is the second part of our two-parter look at the Panama Papers and whistleblowing and taxation. And this episode will focus more on the economics of the story, uh, of the Panama Papers story, and looking specifically at the ways in which tax evasion and transfer of money across nation states is done the way it's reported in the mainstream media.
1: Yes. We should probably give a background to reset ourselves for this week. The Panama Papers, of course, uh, the largest online link of secret documents so far. Yes, Um, We talked last week about the um, person of the whistleblower, the act of whistleblowing. This week, we're talking about um, what we think is the super interesting topic of taxation. Um, and the Panama Papers really focus on tax dodgers. Yes. Tax evasion. This, these characters, these these individuals. Um, famous. Yes. Powerful. Yes. Successful, presumably, yes. by yes. by neoliberal standards of success. Mm. And discourses of paying taxes.
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, we talk, talked a little bit last week about the way the media has differentiated between the British investors in Panama versus foreign investors in Panama. Yes. And I think there's an interesting way in which we, we spoke about corruption and, and the way the British media likes to talk about these other foreign, often post-colonial places, as being corrupt. But there's a way in which I think there's a slight difference as well in terms of where to put the emphasis on this act of investing money in a tax haven. In other words, when it comes to Nawaz Sharif of Pakistan or uh, the Chinese elite or the Indian elite or Putin in Russia, the emphasis I think largely has been on where the hell have they got this much money from? In other words the fact that they have these huge undeclared assets abroad is proof of their corruption in terms of how the money was earned. But when it comes to the British investors principally David Cameron and and his father I think the emphasis has been much more on the fact that the money earned has not been stored in britain and therefore he hasn't paid tax in britain rather than how did they get this much money i think that there's a there's a distinction there
1: there is a distinction there's a question of the legitimacy of having yes. the money in the first yes. place versus yes versus the legitimacy of storing the money yes yes in an offshore account
0: it reflects I think a, a very British notion of privacy, so in spite of everything after everything that 's happened, David Cameron thought he could get away with it by rejecting any questions as to what his own investment portfolio is like by saying quote it 's a private matter, which then by definition includes both how the money was earned and why the money wasn't taxed.
1: Yes, I think it's quite interesting this idea of privacy and money because yes. it is a very British. It yeah. is a very British thing. Yeah. Um to say that talking about money is yeah. vulgar and rude mm-hmm. and that someone's personal financial assets are mm-hmm. private. Mm-hmm. Um which of course is is especially funny, given the role of money in underpinning yeah. the public sector, yeah. um, that it's, uh, in a way it's sort of using a social and cultural norm in order to justify particular, um, taxpaying practices yes. or non-taxpaying yes. practices as yes. the case may be, um, which is quite unique to Britain,
0: yeah. actually. Yes.
1: Um. Even Mitt Romney released yes. his tax information. Yes. And Mitt Romney doesn't really pay tax. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: according to the Daily Mail, as we speak, it is now 1,456 days since David Cameron promised to release his tax return and hasn't. Uh, again, according to the Daily Mail, in that time, Apple have produced six iPhones and eight iPads Um, and a whole host of other things have happened. It's years. It's years. It's years. Um, And what is very odd about that is how little there has been in terms of demanding, public demand that he does it. So I, I, I remember very vividly the way in which Mitt Romney ended up in a position where he had to do it. In other words, the demand, the public demand through the media was getting so powerful that he couldn't figure out a way of not doing it. And that hasn't really happened for Cameron. It hasn't really happened in Britain.
1: No, it's true. I think just now. Mm-hmm. There's a counter available yes. now on the internet, how many days yes. it's been. Yes. But it's gotten to the point where it has been that many days, yeah. years, yes. because there was not a political will calling for There was greater political will calling for Barack Obama's birth certificate. Yes. I mean,
0: I still don't think there is a political will. I mean, there is this counter, but I don't think there is a sense still that the release of David Cameron's tax returns should be a normal obvious part of his public persona as prime minister of the country which is going back to this difference between Britain and America is really interesting because you know it it is the the relationship between taxation and welfare state in Britain is much more obviously a part of the national character, apparently, than I think it is for America. Certainly. I mean, the idea of your wealth being an individual thing, which you have worked for and is there for yours, and you shouldn't have to explain why and how you've got it, seems to me, on the face of it, a very American thing.
1: Oh, it is definitely. Definitely.
0: Except in this case, it doesn't seem to be a British... It seems to be a British thing in this this particular example when you bring in this, this notion of privacy.
1: It's interesting, too. I think it goes back to what we were saying last week mm. about the difficulty in defining David Cameron's position in this particular context. Is he an, a rich dude, an individual rich dude? Or is he... A wing of the state is he an arm of the state yeah. as yeah. prime minister yeah. and is his money yeah. where? Did, where is his money and his yeah. family's money yeah. in relation
0: yeah.
1: to that and you, you can and he he has successfully sort of mobilized the, the British cultural norm of it's a private matter yes. this is my family yeah. that's separate yeah. from from my role as prime yeah. minister yeah. which of course is is deeply ironic given that the British government has seen my bank statements many, many times in order for me to apply for a visa, which is something we'll talk about in a little bit when we get to it. Um, And it does raise this question. There's a a paradox or a a contradiction here in the British media and British public discourse about this, which is about the morally right thing to do and, yeah. and what is morally right mm. and in this this case we have leaving David Cameron alone yes. as being one one potential moral moral right, moral good and the other is paying taxes yeah. and the, the moral right, the yeah. moral good of mm. paying tax
0: yeah.
1: and they're both at work here yeah. and it seems to me strangely enough that the paying tax the good of of paying tax yes. is for the first time outweighing.
0: Yes. I'm I'm just
1: remembering, didn't Joe Biden once get into trouble for
0: calling tax evasion unpatriotic? I think he said at one point and got into trouble for saying this that it is patriotic to pay your taxes.
1: Yes. I I think you're absolutely right. The other the flip side was when Mitt Romney yeah. referred to corporations as people. Yes. And that corporations should be treated like people.
0: Yes. Tax as a way of conceptualizing in economic terms your relationship with the state and your citizenship in a modern nation state is really interesting because, of course, tax as a systematic thing predates the modern nation state.
1: Yes, taxes are quite old.
0: Yes. Um... And going back to what we were discussing last week, in terms of the way Chelsea Manning and Edward Snowden variously justified their, their leaking of the, the information that they leaked. Uh, I remember Chelsea Manning saying that the people should know because it is people's tax dollars that are being spent on these wars and bombing campaigns. And Edward Snowden said something similar, except he couched it in the discourse of democracy and citizenship, which is a more modern discourse than than the discourse of taxation. But there is a similarity in the the way in which taxation and citizenship are being connected, which is not dissimilar to the no taxation without representation line, which marks the birth of America. Yes. in, In many ways. Yes,
1: it certainly does. It is interesting. I mean, I think with both Manning and Snowden, there was a, a difficulty in distinguishing the taxpayer versus the citizen. But it didn't matter so much because neither one was about taxes in particular. Yeah. With Snowden, the concept of citizenship and the rights and responsibilities of the citizen versus the rights and responsibilities and limits of the state, was at stake there was this question of the rights of the citizen were being impinged by the encroaching authority of the state, which the state didn't have um and that was a it's interesting that that is the argument that often gets used by wealthy neoliberals looking to maintain a hold on their money, which is that the state doesn't have a right to know about all of their assets yes. um that their assets if they choose to keep them in a place that doesn't tax them, then that's their right. Yeah. Um, their home state, yeah. the state in which they are a citizen or a national of, doesn't have, it's not within that state's remit or authority to keep tabs on how much money its it, citizens have. It
0: is also the argument used whenever the higher rate of income tax is increased, which is that which people will just leave. As it turns out, rich people don't leave. They just send their money away.
1: They, their money leaves. Yes, yes. And there's, I think
0: there's an interesting thing here to talk about the contrast between how easy it is for money to cross borders versus how difficult it is for human beings, depending on the human being in question.
1: Yes. Well, what's, what is very interesting is um, fairly recently, um, it... Became clear that a significant portion of the London housing market has been purchased by
0: Russian oligarchs. Russian Middle oligarchs, Eastern but a, there was a
1: Middle Eastern prince, a, yes. one specific Middle Eastern prince, a sheikh, who had purchased a huge number yes. of real estate properties in London. Um, without ever yeah. needing to be there no. or living in yes. them or using them or being in London at all. No. And so in in that sense, it's not even that the, the, the wealthy people travel with their wealth. Yeah.
0: yeah,
1: It is just that they move it around like on a Monopoly board.
0: And the various examples of anti-immigrant rhetoric that has affected both Britain and America in, in different ways never really applies to these people. It never applies to the super-rich who are able to move their money across borders and are able to move themselves across borders. They could if they wanted uh, to. If they wanted to. No, so, yeah. even
1: though a lot of the anti-immigration rhetoric is about a shortage of housing. Yes, there yes. it is very specifically a rhetoric about how immigrants take houses from the native population from yes. the, the home population and and that's happening yes there are houses that are being taken by non-british people but they're not being lived in by non-british people either yes they're being purchased by the super rich yes and it is I mean, it is almost farcical, the way that that the discourse works um, against refugees and asylum seekers, people who don't have houses at all. Um, And it's... We've talked about this before. There is a name for this. It is called the neoliberal nexus. It's used by a number of academics. Um, We've talked about it in the context of Wendy Brown when we talked about borders and fences. Wendy Brown is a philosopher um, in the United States, And she writes a lot about sovereignty and borders and boundaries um, and the body of the citizen. And the neoliberal nexus is this term that's used to describe the free movement of capital across borders and the increasing restrictions of labor of people across borders and how the relationship between the two gives rise to a particular form of neoliberalism um, that we find to be quite problematic, um, and the Panama Papers are a symptom yes. of that neoliberal nexus. They point to one of the ways in which the neo- neoliberal nexus works. Yes, um, I think in a way that that a lot of people don't necessarily know mm-hmm. about. Um, we're more familiar with with Border Patrol when we enter or exit a country, um, less so with tax havens. Yes. I mean, I've never used a tax haven. Haven't you? I, I haven't. No, that surprises me. It, yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, but what is interesting as well is that it is, you know, neoliberal, the neoliberal nexus is much more rigorous at policing human beings as they cross borders than it is about policing money as it crosses borders. But it does police money as it crosses borders as well. So, one of the examples that we could think of here is uh, the modern Indian state. So, like many other countries, India and Indians, various Indians, including very famous Bollywood stars, have been implicated in the Panama Papers story. They have taken their money and taken it out of India, seemingly Without any consequence. However, the Indian government has of late done a massive clampdown on any charitable organizations, what's called NGOs, so non governmental organizations, from raising money and out abroad and bringing money in to India to do their work. Now, this is justified across multiple, uh, justified by multiple reasons so on the one hand it is to do with somehow hampering Indian development Indian economic financial development Uh, it is to do with particular religious charities raising money to fund terrorism and of course these organizations are more often than not Islamic Uh, it is to do with uh, foreign currency coming in and leaving India with without the Indian government being able to control it. So depending on who you are and depending on your particular political position, you might find it hard to transfer money between countries in the same way that depending on who you are and your socio-economic political position, you might find it hard to travel across borders.
1: Yes. I think this is especially interesting... Um in the context of remittances. So Donald Trump has just said that he will pay for his wall. We talked about the wall. The wall comes back. It's,
0: it's a huge Donald wall. Donald Trump it's comes back. It's a beautiful in. wall. It's a
1: huge wall. It's going to be huge. And it's a
0: classy wall. And
1: he's going to pay for it by restricting the payment of remittances across the border to Mexico. So remittances are, is the the term that we use in case, in case you're unfamiliar, um, to describe payments from family members or friends being paid back to a country of origin or somewhere else, um, that is earned where the person is working. So, for example, a lot of people move to the United States from many parts of the world and they send some, most, or all of the money that they earn back to family in their country of origin. Um, There are many, many Mexican immigrants in the United States, but of course, Donald Trump elides Mexican immigrants and Latino immigrants. There are people from all over Central and South America who live and work and have families in the U.S. But of course, Donald Trump has said that he is going to pay for his wall by restricting remittances back to Mexico. He's going to use remittance money to pay for the wall. And I have no idea how he'll calculate that. It's notoriously difficult to calculate remittance money, um, especially because people are required to use a certain set of banks that charge high fees. I'm thinking of Western Union um, to pay remittances because it is very difficult for people who are not the super rich to put their money in banks that allow them to transfer easily across borders. And so they rely on organizations and institutions like Western Union, which are very, very secretive. Um, But it is there is a very, very clear idea here that poor people or working people or middle-class people don't have a right to send their money across the border. That money should be used for the United States government that money shouldn't be available to Mexican families living in Mexico
0: I mean there's there's a lot more to say about this but just in passing of course Trump's argument that he can stop (laughs) remittances and and use that money to pay for the wall suggests a, a willful misunderstanding between citizenship and state you know the, the the idea that he can do that and therefore get the Mexican state to pay for it, because the money that people are sending back are somehow going to the Mexican state yeah. as opposed to individual Mexican families. Um, but the Western Union is a is a fascinating example, um, and it's it's an institution that personally I've had to use. Yeah. So when I was doing field work in Pakistan, my um, on the third day of a six week trip. My bank card got swallowed by a cash machine, an ATM, and my bank refused to send me a card out to Pakistan. And had I not had someone, namely my wife, who was able to transfer money to me through Western Union, I would not have access to any of my funds, because even as quite a privileged middle-class professional academic researcher, there was no way for me to transfer my money from my British account into Pakistan in any way that I, w- I was able to use it. So Claire, my wife, had to transfer money from her account through Western Union. And it's a fascinating industry infrastructure about which I knew nothing before. So you go on a website or you go into a Western Union store, You sh- sometimes you have to show ID, and you say, I'm going to transfer X amount of pounds or X amount of dollars to this person in another country, and that you are given a 10 digit code, and that person takes some ID and the 10 digit code and goes to the corresponding Western Union branch in the city you happen to be. I happen to be in Lahore, and I got the money in cash. And of course, there is a huge charge for this service, but one of the things you are paying for is the secrecy. So Western Union is under no obligation to tell any nation state how much money is being transferred and what, whether that money is taxed or not taxed or how that money is earned or whatever. And this entire underground semi-legal money transfer system is discursively treated in a very, very different way from the kind of money transfer that leads to the Panama Papers, I think.
1: Yes, I would agree. I would definitely agree. There is... I mean, the reason for Western Union to exist is because there is no alternative. Yes. And so this this institution charges very, very high fees um, and has a quite a serious monopoly on the market. And so the... The reason that people use it is because there is no alternative they yes. do not have a bank yes. that makes it easy to transfer money abroad and yes. i think you and i both live this yes on a regular basis because we ourselves are, are migrants um in complicated ways and and unless you are super rich and have access to elite organizations like this company in Panama, you don't have a choice. You, you use the institutions that you have available to you. Um, and you're criminalized or demonized or, um, ostracized and treated quite poorly.
0: Because, of course, that's the, that's the stick to beat immigrants with, right? That you, you, any money you earn, you don't put back into the economy here. You send it back to your, your family because it, it, it somehow becomes a criminal act to want to look after your family.
1: Which, of course, you know, David Cameron's father might very well say, yes. I've invested all of this money so that I can look after my family. Yes. And I want to keep as much of it as possible and not pay yes. tax on it because mm. I want my family to have as much as possible. Yes.
0: David Cameron managed to use a wonderful non-denial denial to use Woodward and Bernstein's phrase from the Watergate reporting when uh, they released the government released a statement saying David Cameron and his family do not will will not benefit from any offshore investments in the future carefully neglecting to say what might have happened in the past yeah and of course investment in the past doesn't stop in the past you know investment is a is is not temporally limited in that in that sense money he's inve- he earned in the past from offshore funds he still has and is growing in whatever fashion he has it you know whether it's property or bonds or or whatever
1: or has been put to work in in achieving social capital yes education yes. or or positions of yes. power yes
0: and of course the the wider context here which cannot be forgotten, is that all of this is happening at a moment of fundamental changes to society where a global recession is being used as a, as a, a, an excuse to make swathing cuts to public sector services. The rhetoric is we are all in it together. Uh, the idea being that everyone from all strata of society are suffering or sacrificing equally for the betterment of the nation-state as the nation-state figures out a way of getting its economy back on track. And that is why junior doctor's contracts need to be changed. That is why disability benefit needs to be cut. That is why...
1: Second bedroom needs se- to be taxed.
0: Second bedroom needs to be taxed. That is why um, university tuition fees need to be hiked up. So that is that is why uh, schools need to be transformed into academies and on and on and on and on, many of which we've discussed on, on this podcast already. And all of this has to be considered when we read the extent of British governmental involvement in the Panama Papers.
1: It was interesting because in 2011, um, it's been making the round certainly on on my internet, Bernie Sanders gave a speech in the government um, and Bernie Sanders is is very famously um, a democratic socialist. Um, and is is pro taxation um, and he gave a speech around the time that the US changed its trading laws with Panama and he said that these trading laws would allow for the increase in the use of Panama as a tax haven and of course he was absolutely right not because he was looking to the future and predicting the future but because he knew and knows how these particular trading laws work and how they function and that they were devised specifically to allow for the increased use of tax havens. And he said, towards the end, he says towards the end of this speech, you can watch it on YouTube, it's all over YouTube, it's gone viral, and he says, in an era where the government, you know this is post-2008, where the government is dealing with a massive deficit, this is of serious concern. Because taxes are one of the two tools that the government has to decrease its deficit. There's either taxes or cutting government spending, right? And those two things are the ideological tools wielded by the government to push forward its particular policies. And the Conservative Party in the UK has thrown around this word deficit over and over and over again, to demonize the previous government, to demonize poor people, to demonize immigrants, to say that the deficit is the core of our government's problems. The deficit is the problem. The deficit is the problem. You hear this over and over and over again. You read it in comments below the line on every single newspaper. The deficit, the deficit, the deficit. The tax haven in Panama could solve the deficit. The amount of money that we're talking about could fix the deficit. And it is that shocking and horrifying. And I. I hope, I hope that the attention that the Panama Papers are getting makes that clear. Yeah. Um, obviously, I don't think that that it will. <laughs> uh, but because I am a, I am a cynic. Yeah. Um, but, but I do hope that the interest that the the great British public has yeah. in tax dodgers and tax evasion extends to include the information in this leak.
0: It's, it's really interesting as well. You mentioned the Sanders speech from 2011 and I was just remembering um, the auto bailout, which is, ha- which is happening around the same time, right when the, the new elected Obama government in, in its first term injects millions of dollars into the Detroit auto industry yeah. in order to allow it to survive. And one of the lines used by the Romney campaign, the romney Ryan campaign, in order to critique Obama's use of a fiscal stimulus to save the auto industry, was that General Motors then exported the production of Jeeps to China. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah. And the, the argument was that, you know, this democratic liberal spend heavy government is spending taxpayers' dollars which are then being transferred out of the country, which they weren't. General Motors came out very quickly saying, "That is not what they're doing." To another country, and the production is being exported to another country, which again is a very different rhetoric that the neoliberal right uses from the rhetoric about tax havens. You know, those those two things are treated very differently. Yes. Not all money is equal.
1: Why would it be? Why would it be?
0: I think we are done um thanks a lot for listening
1: yes thank you
0: and we will see you next week you know tweet at us let us know what you think if you get your podcast from itunes then rate us review us it helps other people find find the podcast and we will see you in a week's time thanks bye we hope you enjoyed this episode
1: i have been hannah fitzpatrick
0: and i have been Anindya richardry
1: you can contact me on Twitter at Dr. H. Fitz.
0: And me at Dr. India R.
1: Our music was provided by the Agrarians, and this has been State of the Theory.
0: Thank you.